we need to just take a step back and understand that the cholesterol lowering industry or the fear of cholesterol is a you know it's a trillion dollar business at least wow see you later sniffles check out this review on immunomilk our grass fed colostrum from heart and soil supplements Lindy says, every summer I have suffered from allergies and exacerbation of my asthma. Normally, I'm loaded up on daily decongestants, corticosteroids, and histamines. I began taking Immunomilk, grass-fed colostrum from hardened soil, about six months ago, and I am nothing but impressed. This summer, I have rarely needed a tissue, let alone a pharmacy worth of medications. I am so happy to have a natural way to feel better. I think grass-fed colostrum is probably our most underrated supplement at Hardened Soil Supplements. So this is the first milk from cows. It is immunoglobulin rich. It is full of powerful peptides like IGF-1 and 2, TGF-alpha and beta, and colostronin, which is a peptide that has been studied and improves Alzheimer's disease outcomes in patients. There's a randomized controlled trial I talked about on last week's podcast. But colostrum is powerful for recovery, for allergies, for asthma, for immunologic issues, for gut issues. This is probably one of my favorite supplements at Heart and Soil. You can find all of our supplements at heartandsoil.co. And our mission is to help you reclaim your birthright to radical, optimal health. All of our supplements are in glass containers, never plastic, because plastic is bullshit. Check out colostrum. I think if you're an athlete, if you're trying to heal from anything like this scar on my head, if you have gut issues, if you have any immune issues, grass-fed colostrum could be very helpful. There are literally hundreds of studies on the power of colostrum for humans. So check it out, heartandsoil.co. On this week's podcast, I'm so grateful to have my friend Asim Malhotra, Dr. Asim Malhotra. He was recently on Joe Rogan's podcast and he did an amazing job there. I hope you'll listen to that one as well. In this podcast with Asim, we talk about pharmaceuticals, we talk about statins, we talk about cholesterol. He's a practicing cardiologist in the UK. And so we talk about his views on LDL cholesterol, whether it's a big deal that your cholesterol goes up a little bit when you're eating an animal-based diet or meat on any diet, when you're having more saturated fat and less seed oils, your LDL might go up. Is that bad? He talks about how he thinks about risk from a cardiovascular perspective. We talk about why so many people have a flawed perspective on LDL, become myopic, looking at LDL, and we talk about what you really should be thinking of or what he and I really believe you should be thinking of when you're looking at your cholesterol and focusing on your metabolic health. We include tools, including specific labs to assess your metabolic health, like fasting insulin, or to assess your stress levels in an objective manner. And we talk about lifestyle interventions. We also talk about a documentary that Asim is working on to expose the corruption in the pharmaceutical industry. So really grateful to have him on the podcast. And I think you guys will really enjoy this one. There is a ton of valuable information here. Want to give a shout out to my sponsors. They make this podcast possible. This is a free podcast. I want to start with Merrick Health. So Merrick is amazing. They are the premium telehealth platform. There are so many physicians out there in the world who are not going to think about your health the way that you do, which is why I love Merrick, because you can do this from the comfort of your own home. You can connect with a physician through them. You can even order your own labs through Merrick Health. And this is one of my favorite things. Whenever I go back to the US, I have blood work through Merrick. Again, it's M-A-R-E-K health.com. With the code Paul, you can get 10% off your first lab order. And we designed a carnivore MD panel, probably have to rename it the Paul Saladino MD panel, because I rebranded all my stuff, Paul Saladino MD recently, for as low as $243 before the discount. So for like $220, you can get 
um, a panel that I designed with Merrick Health to be the most impactful blood work. It's not a fully comprehensive panel. Those can get expensive. I wanted to make the most bang for your buck. But if you want a fully comprehensive panel, they can help you with that. You can listen to my previous blood work panels and mirror exactly what I've gotten in the past. But getting your labs is critical. It's, it's just an important way to understand what's going on with your overall health and fitness. Um, in this podcast with Asim Hocher, we talk about cortisol to DHES ratio. Blood work is vital to living a long and healthy life. Uh, I get my labs drawn all the time, as I said. So go to merrickhealth.com. That's M-A-R-E-K health.com. Uh, front slash fundamental dash health dash collection front slash. And you can get comprehensive uh, lab work for 10% off with the code Paul. Also, you can add a lab analysis to have the results reviewed with a potential over-the-counter supplement and treatment recommendations. MerrickHealth.com front slash fundamental dash health dash collection front slash. Use the code Paul at checkout for your order. And you can order your own blood work and get 10% off that order. So I love what they're doing over at Merrick. Also want to give a shout out to my friends at Juve. I love red light. I want to get my friend um, Jack Cruz on the podcast soon to talk about red light, hopefully. But uh, uh, Juve has been making these red light devices for so long. They're really the leaders in the space. One of my non-negotiables is getting my daily dose of red light. And I've been using Juve for years. It's relaxing and easy to use. You've probably, probably heard me talk about them before. It's J-O-O-V-V is Juve. I use my device daily to support healthy cellular function. It's one of the foundations of health. I sit in front of it at night. It helps me relax before I go to sleep. It has red and infrared modes. There are so many clinical benefits of red light therapy, such as improving skin, faster muscle recovery, reduced pain and inflammation, enhanced sleep. Um, I've been recommending Juve for years because the devices are simply the best. Their modular design allows for a variety of setup options, giving you flexibility. Treatments are easy, can be done in as little as 10 minutes. All you have to do is relax and let your body take in the light. They have several different options, including a wireless handheld device called the Juve Go. Your health doesn't have to be complicated. Juve makes it simple by helping what matters most, your cells with light. So you can check out the Juves today at juve.com, J-O-O-V-V.com, front slash Paul. They're offering all my listeners an exclusive discount on their first order. Go to J-O-O-V-V.com, front slash Paul, to qualify for that special discount. And you can pick up a Juve there today. Some exclusions apply. Want to give a shout out to my friends at Kalima Sea Salt. This is a no ocean born microplastic sea salt, something that is very cool in today's world. You can go to drpaulsalt.com to get your free bag. Every year, humans dump 8 million tons of plastic garbage in the ocean, which is really unfortunate and just scary. But that's where your table salt comes from. That garbage breaks down into tiny pieces of plastic called microplastics. Salt crystallizes around those, forming the core of your salt crystals. So when you're putting salt on your food, you're eating little bits of plastic bags, water bottles, and other garbage. A new study reveals that microplastics are found in 90% of all salt tested, but not Kalima sea salt, which is free of ocean-borne microplastics. You get your first bag free. It's freaking delicious, super crunchy. It's a great finishing salt. It's hand harvested from the salt flats uh, in Kalima, the Kalima salt flats in Mexico. So you're supporting Salineros there. And you can go to drpaulsalt.com to get your free bag of Kalima sea salt. Last but not least, I want to give a shout out to my friends at 8sleep.com. This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. Summer is right around the corner. There's nothing worse than tossing, turning, and sweating throughout the night because of warmer temperatures. But the Pod Pro cover from 8sleep will keep you cool all night, 
all the way down to 55 degrees so you wake up fully refreshed. We all know, or maybe you've heard, that temperature is the biggest game changer when it comes to sleep, and the Pod Pro Cover by 8 Sleep will help adjust the temperature of your bed. It's a cooling cover. It's amazing. It fits on any bed like a fitted sheet. It will improve your sleep by adjusting the temperature on each side of the bed based on your partners and your individual needs. It can cool down and warm up, and it adjusts based on the phases of sleep. How cool is that in the environment that you are in? I have a Pod Pro cover in Austin, and I love it. It's it's such a nice thing to go home to. I think of Costa Rica mostly as my home, but um, when I'm back in Austin and I sleep on the Pod Pro cover, it's just it really helps me feel like I fall asleep more quickly. I stay asleep longer. I feel like I wake up refreshed and I sleep deeply. They're an incredible company doing good work. So I've never experienced sleep like this. I think you guys should check it out. Invest in the rest you deserve with eight sleep. Pod Pro Cover. You can go to 8sleep. That's E-I-G-H-T-S-L-E-E-P.com front slash CarnivoreMD for exclusive Memorial Day savings on the Pod Cover through June the 6th. Stay cool this summer with 8sleep. Now shipping within the USA, Canada, the UK, and select countries in the EU, Australia, and abroad. All right, onto the podcast, guys. Dr. Asim Malhotra, thanks for coming on the podcast, my friend. Paul, it's great to see you. Yeah. So we did a podcast a few years ago, but for those who are not familiar with you, what do you do in your life? Who are you? And then we'll dive into all sorts of interesting things. I'm a consultant cardiologist. I'm a practicing physician. Um, I've been a doctor now for well over 20 years, qualified in 2001. Um, I am a public health activist. I'm a writer. I write medical journals. I teach. I've written three books, all bestsellers. And, uh, yeah, I, I've got a very special interest in two big areas on trying to understand how uh, the roots of our chronic disease epidemic, the special interest in diets and, and the diet sort of um, driver of that, and also on the excesses and manipulations of big pharma. Yeah, I mean, we share both of those interests. I think that I wish there were more physicians that were similarly interested in the roots of chronic disease. When I was in medical school, we just weren't taught to ask that question. I mean, were you, where did this, how did you become curious about this? Because my training as a physician was basically, hey, these are the pharmaceutical drugs. These are the diseases. These are the drugs you give for these diseases. And that's it. Like, how did you become curious about the roots of disease? Yeah, I'm very similar to you, Paul, as well. We didn't really get much training uh, in medical school in terms of root causes of disease. There was kind of an acceptance that these are, common conditions and you essentially treat them with pills. I think certainly one thing I remember from medical school, though, was, um, you know, that kind of um, uh, was a, I would say an epiphany moment to some degree is that when I learned that the biggest impact on reduction in cardiovascular disease, de- disease deaths since the 70s, um, the single biggest factor was reduction in smoking. And that made me think, okay, well, smoking was a huge risk factor when it comes to heart disease and certainly on a population level. Um, government intervention made a big difference. So, but besides that, absolutely, yeah, not really much. And then what really got me down this, um, took me down this journey was just observing patients, my own clinical experience and seeing over many, many years, we had more stress on our system in the NHS. Um, I was observing more and more patients, certainly with chronic disease. Um, We hadn't done much impact uh, after smoking reduction in terms of combating heart disease. So that's where, where I kind of tried to understand the root cause of of the, also the obesity epidemic. Um, and then that journey took me to where I am now, where 
essentially, you know, we are in a situation where our um, medical clinical decision making, or even when it comes to nutrition science, has been influenced by very powerful vested interests, in particular, big pharma and big food. And, and now we have to fight back against that because if we carry on down the same trajectory, um, people's health is only going to get worse. And that's where we are. I mean, the situation is getting worse for right now, as you probably know. In America, I think you've lost two years off your life expectancy. In the UK, we've lost, um, we've stored our life expectancy for the last, you know, 13 years since 2010. But on top of that, more people are living longer with chronic disease. So essentially, our health is regressing. It's getting worse. And that's, that's a really big problem. As you're saying that, I don't think enough people understand how much influence pharma and big food, quote unquote, have on the way that they think about diet and nutrition and health. So many of the studies and so much of the curriculum in medical school is directly and indirectly influenced by pharma and industry and big food. I mean, I posted in the past about the fact that 19 out of the 20 members of the 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines in the United States, in the US government, had ties to pharma and to processed food companies, with ILSI, the International Life Sciences Institute, being the biggest funder of, but 95% of those people have those ties. It's crazy. And so there's just so much influence into the dietary guidelines that were taught in medical school. You, you and I both, even though you went to medical school in the UK and I was in the United States, and then the way that we're taught to think in medical school is influenced by pharma. And then we learned this during the recent um, pandemic, the advertisements on television are programmed by pharma. This is crazy. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and you know, the, I think the, the big conflict there is that these entities, pharma, big food, they are not there primarily at all. In fact, they have no interest in your health. They are there to make money and they make money, unfortunately, we've realized more and more now through fraud. I mean, through deception, deliberate, you know, uh, deception uh, or lying in order to make money. That's what it is. And that's what they do. And it's almost become legalized, you know, or acceptable. And, uh, and that's a big issue. So, you know, you mentioned the issue about the dietary guidelines uh, in the States. We have something similar here. We had a, uh, we have something called the Eat Well Guide uh, in the UK, which is supposed to represent what's considered healthy eating or healthy diet patterns. And uh, it's promoted by the National Health Service. It's, uh, and on that, on that health eating guide, Zoe Harkin, you may know, who's a public health nutrition expert, she published in British Journal of Sports Medicine, did her own investigation and found out that um, you know, a significant number, if not most of the people who were influencing what goes on that so-called Eat Well guide are connected to ultra-processed food companies, you know, companies like Mar Mars, McDonald's, even Coca-Cola, Pepsi. It's like, and then when you look at the actual what's on that plate, you know, there's, there's probably a predominance of uh, too much sort of low quality carbs and a lot of starch. But the thing that's really um, pretty extraordinary is that in the corner of this sort of this Eat Well guide, you have things like um, potato chips, you have cakes and biscuits and that. And they put a little kind of disclaimer underneath on this health eating guide, eat less often and in small amounts. That's what they do. Um, and that shouldn't even be on there at all. And when I spoke to the health, uh, the, the lead of public health nutrition in the UK behind the dietary guidelines. And I said, you know, fine, I understand there are creative disagreements about what's the healthiest diet, but why have you got these foods on there? And her response to me was a scene you've got to understand one of the biggest contributors to our economy is a food industry. And I thought, what? You're supposed to be representing independent evidence-based nutrition guidance 
And you're talking about appeasing the food industry. So there you go. That really sums it up in a nutshell. We have the corporate capture of medicine and public health, uh, Paul. And now we have to try and help people and guide them as leaders in the space, if you like, um, to try and you know fight back against this with, with education, empowerment, um, but also to try and influence the dietary guidelines and policies. It's, it's wild. It's wild. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that you do the work you do. Do you want to, I think it would, be, it would be fun, I think maybe to tell the story of sugar. And I think maybe in the podcast, later in the podcast, we'll get into different types of sugar and high fructose yeah. corn syrup. But let's, do you want to start with the story of sugar? And, and just, this has been going on for a long time. This way that big food has kind of been connected with our government and influencing what we think of as healthy and not healthy. I mean, you know, there's there's a story here about sugar industry paying off people to shift the blame away from sugar toward fat, which is probably a lot of the root of our paradigm that's ingrained and programmed in so many of us that fat is bad for us, especially saturated fat. But do you want to tell that story for us? Because I think people would be interested if they don't know this history of the last like yeah. 80 years. Yeah. And, and actually, that's you know um, where I got my particular interest in the food issue is actually all related in many ways to cardiology and heart disease. So, you know, from 1920 up until 1970, 1960, 1970, there was a, um, an increase, significant increase in heart disease in the US and scientists trying to figure out what was causing it. Of course, this is well before we realized tobacco was a big issue. We'll come on to that later. And in that discussion or debate, you know, there were two kind of lead scientists, if you like, who were loggerheads. One was Ansel Keys, American physiologist from uh, University of Minnesota. And he postulated that he said that he thought that saturated fat was the, the main driver um, of increased cholesterol and heart disease. Whereas John Yudkin, who's a British nutritionist, he was very much thinking that this was driven by sugar. And, uh, you know, ultimately it culminated in Ansel Keys winning that battle, the PR battle, if you like, um, uh, to change dietary guidelines. Part of it also was the fact sugar industry was very, very powerful. They supported Keys. And they were able to kind of discredit, if you like, Yudkin. Mm. And it, what happened ultimately is because of this flawed science, it resulted in dietary guidelines changing in the US um, and in the UK, initially in the, in the US in 1977, then UK in 1981, where there was a, a now a guidance having before primarily most people understood our, our grandparents, whatever else, that actually starch and sugar was what caused weight gain. And suddenly they changed the guidance saying we should limit our total calorie consumption to 30% uh, of calories from fat and less than 10% from saturated fat. And as a result, people automatically increase their carbohydrate. But what happened is the food industry took advantage of this flawed science and started marketing all these low-fat foods. And, uh, you know, fat was a demon. Um, and therefore, it, it wasn't that people were eating high-quality carbs, um, uh, Paul, because we can talk about that later. I'm very much with you on that. It was low, ultra-processed, low-quality carbs, and a lot of it was just added sugar. And as a result, you know, certainly in my view, I think there's a strong case to be made that has what has been a significant contributor to the increasing obesity epidemic. But talking about, you know, the capture and the sugar industry, how powerful they are, many people don't know. So in 2003, uh, when the evidence was already quite clear that there was an excess of sugar consumption, refined sugar consumption in many countries of the world, especially the U.S., the World Health Organization was about to change its guidance to say that actually we should limit um, our total sugar consumption to certainly less than 10% of calories and probably closer to 5%. But the, um, but the American government under George Bush Jr. actually threatened 
to withdraw funding from the WHO because they were lobbied by Coca-Cola and they were successful. So the guidance didn't change. And then I, you know, I was one of these sort of big public advocates on a global scale to call for this, um, you know, having done my own investigation, following on from, you know, great scientists like Professor Robert Lustig, who's an endocrinologist, as you probably know, in, in California, who really was a kind of, you know, reignited Yudkin's research and did his own research on this area. And, uh, and then we managed to ultimately, through, you know, a lot of a big media campaign, you know, pressurize the British government to introduce a, a soda tax here. And also that ultimately, as well, around the same time, uh, managed to influence the WHO. But it took a, a long time for us to get there. But having said all that, Paul, there's still a, there's still a big problem, certainly with excess sugar consumption. Um, my own investigation, which I published in the BMJ in 2013, actually revealed that the guidance in Europe was telling people as a guideline daily amount, not as a limit, that you should be consuming 22 and a half teaspoons of sugar a day in your diet. When the evidence, certainly when it comes to heart disease and metabolic risk, you know, these, a lot of these are observational studies, suggest a limit probably is that once you consume more than six teaspoons of sugar a day, then that's when you start to, it depends where you, you know, your background and your ethnicity and all that kind of stuff, but that's when you start to increase your risk. Whereas we were consuming the actual, uh, in the UK and in the US, actual refined sugar consumption was in the order of about 20, 20 teaspoons. I mean, many people 30 or 40 teaspoons a day. So there was a big discrepancy with what the evidence was telling us was likely to be the limit and what people were consuming two or three, four times the amount. And uh, that really sums up the situation. Certainly when it comes to cholesterol and saturated fat, separately to this, as you probably know, I was involved in systematic reviews on this, on this area. And there is no consistent evidence, certainly, that saturated fat causes heart disease um, and certainly doesn't worsen your cholesterol profile because it also has an effect on the good cholesterol, HDL. Um, and then cholesterol itself anyway, we can talk a bit more about this, has been grossly exaggerated as a risk factor for heart disease. Yeah, I want to talk about all of that. There's so much nuance in this that's so important to, to tease out. I think this nuance in nutritional science, the intersection of nutritional science and medicine, the nuance is frustrating for many people, but I find it fascinating because if we just highlight some of the things that you said, the processed refined sugar industry and Anyone who's familiar with, with my work recently knows that I've tried to delineate differences between a processed refined sugar, like a high fructose corn syrup, and the, the appearance or the, uh, the sugars, quote unquote, that are in things like fruit or honey. We can talk about that maybe later in the podcast. But the fact that the refined sugar industry is funding Ansel Keys is just this like the collusion has been a part of our governmental guidelines and influence of nutrition for decades now. And when you're when you're talking about that history, the Yunkin history versus Ansel Keys, it's it's apparent to me that there was a couple of things that were really left out. I mean, what about pesticides? What about seed oils? I mean, this is a fascinating story about highly processed, highly refined omega-6 polyunsaturated rich seed oils like corn, canola, sunflower, safflower. Uh, I don't think anyone's looked at that. And there's a fascinating seed oil story that I've spoken about with other people on the podcast too. And the timing of the seed oil thing correlates as well. Certainly smoking played a role, but I mean, seed oils were introduced in the American diet in 1910 with, you know, with uh, basically lard, not lard, but, you know, hydrogenated oil in terms of Crisco. This was the original seed oil from Procter & Gamble. Prior to that, there was cottonseed oil in the late 1800s. And those were not even used as anything other than machine lubricants prior to this. So there was this, there were some really interesting changes in the American diet happening in that time that could have, and lifestyle that could have led to heart disease. And it's, it's fascinating to me that what appears to have happened was that history is written by the victors 
And the history gets written by the people who funded Ansel Keys. And then I don't know if you know this, but Procter & Gamble also made a large donation to the American Heart Association. I think the, the genesis of the American Heart Association was a donation equivalent to like $20 million today in wow. I think it's the 1950s. Um, and that was the genesis that was from Procter & Gamble, right? So Procter & Gamble, who are making Crisco and the original seed oils, make a donation equivalent to $20 million today. I think it, I forget the exact amount with inflation and whatnot, but to the American Heart Association, that's the beginning of that organization. And then the in terms of fat, the guidelines begin to shift toward more polyunsaturated fat is better and less saturated fat is, is good. So this is a crazy yeah. thing. Maybe we can dive into that because with your yeah. expertise as a cardiologist, I think this is really interesting. This, demon, yeah. this demonization of saturated fat. It, absolutely. So it's really interesting because it again comes back to cholesterol. So I think people need to, we need to just take a step back and understand that the cholesterol lowering industry or the fear of cholesterol is a, you know, it's a trillion dollar business at least. Wow. You know, we know that the total sales of statin drugs have been, you know, in the order of a trillion dollars. Uh, and, and, that's extraordinary when you think about it. So there's a huge industry around it. There's food industry as well. And what these seed oils do, they do lower cholesterol. But, you know, just to quote um, a colleague of mine, Professor Rita Redberg, who's a cardiologist at UCSF, she's editor of German Total Medicine, she says cholesterol is just a lab number. Who cares about lowering cholesterol unless it benefits the patient? And when you look at the seed oils, you're absolutely right, Paul. Certainly when you, um, you know, when they're heated uh, and, and for cooking purposes, we know they produce these toxic compounds called aldehydes, which are carcinogenic. Um, and, uh, and, and that's really, really bad for the heart, for the brain. It's, it's, it's definitely linked to cancer as well. Um, there is no real benefit at all. It's only harmful to have seed oils in my view. I don't think that you should be having seed oils at all. They are pro-inflammatory. And I think, again, with his distraction about lowering cholesterol as the primary way of, of preventing heart disease, which has failed completely, utterly, miserably failed. Um, it's distracted actually from the understanding now that heart disease is a chronic inflammatory condition which is exacerbated by metabolic risk factors. So it had very little to do with cholesterol, actually, at all. Um, the only reason we have got to this stage is because uh, about one in 250 people suffer from a condition called familial hyperlipidemia, and they have genetically very high levels of cholesterol. And those people tend to develop heart disease compared to the normal population. But even in those groups, 70% of women and 50% of men will not develop premature heart disease. And my own research, we'd figured out that it was nothing to do with LDL, in terms of the people with FH who develop heart disease versus the ones that don't have no difference in LDL. It's probably something to do with those, uh, a subset of those people who have issues with clotting, et cetera. So the whole cholesterol paradigm needs to be really broken down. And you know what I say to patients is I really, I don't proactively, by the way, I've got to be honest here, I'm a cardiologist and I do not proactively do anything to lower anyone's cholesterol at all, at all, because it's, it's horseshit. It is, it is basically Ford science. It's bullshit. Pardon my language. It's complete bullshit. And we have shown that there is no correlation with prevention uh, of reducing heart attacks and strokes in the systematic review in BMJ evidence-based medicine. People look that up, me and two other cardiologists. We, we, we showed that this hypothesis that the lower your cholesterol, the better is flawed. Um, and, uh, and actually, we can improve the cholesterol profile linked to insulin resistance and HDL and triglycerides, for example. But if we focus on insulin resistance, then the cholesterol profile improves. But total cholesterol and LDL itself, there should be no, for the overall majority of people, there should not be a public health drive to lower it uh, for the sake of lowering it. Absolutely not. It's so interesting to hear you say that because I've talked to other cardiologists who agree. I've had them on the podcast and I just need to get a cardiologist on the podcast who thinks 
that you need to lower cholesterol so we can have a, a, a respectful debate because, you know, it's, it's just, it's so interesting to me that so much of the population believes that cholesterol is bad. When I talk about including more nutrient rich animal foods in the human diet, that's kind of the center of my message. One of the, I think the single most common question I get is what about my cholesterol? Won't this raise my cholesterol? So over the last 80 years, the pharma industry, I'm not sure who is behind it. Food industry has done a very good job of programming the general public, mostly through media, that cholesterol is bad, as you're saying. And there's this mass hypnosis of cholesterol lowering without really any attention or awareness of underlying metabolic health. I can't yes. tell you how many people write to me or text me and say, I'm, I'm eating your diet. I'm eating meat and organs and fruit and honey. And I feel great, but my cholesterol is up. What do I do? And I'll ask them, did your doctor check a fasting insulin? And I don't think I've ever, not one time heard of a, a quote, mainstream physician checking a fasting insulin. As physicians in the United States, and perhaps also in Britain, we're just not taught about how to contextualize the lipid panel. I love the way you're, you're describing this, that your lipid panel can change, but just looking at LDL, HDL, triglycerides, and total cholesterol, that's just not the whole story. You just can't, yeah. I don't think you can make clinical decisions about someone's cardiovascular risk with those metrics. It's just, you can see them change in a way. And oftentimes, like you're saying, when someone eats more saturated fat from animals, butter, tallow, whatever, their LDL cholesterol, low density of the protein may go up, but usually yeah. the triglycerides go down and the yeah. HDL goes up. And so, but physicians, at least the ones that I've come across peripherally are so myopically focused on LDL, it drives me nuts. Yeah, I think the way to describe it, certainly amongst physicians and members of the public, is the indoctrination is so, so deep on cholesterol being bad that even educated people think they're being objective. This is, this is it takes time to overcome this. And uh, that's what we've been trying to do for many, many years. But it's very, very clear. Um, I tell you what's, right, what's interesting as well, just to muddy the waters a little bit. Paul, a few years ago, I was also involved in a systematic review in the BMJ Open, publishing BMJ Open where we looked at people over 60 to see was there an association of LDL cholesterol and heart disease. And the reason we looked at that, something that's forgotten from the original Framingham study, which started in uh, Massachusetts in 1948 and went on for 30 years, which followed over 5,000 people. And we got lots of risk factors for heart disease from there, like smoking and high blood pressure and diabetes and even high cholesterol, is that once people, um, there, was a, there was an association at very high levels of, of uh, total cholesterol, like well over 300 milligrams per deciliter, right? Which most people don't have. Um, but once you hit sort of 50 or 60, as cholesterol dropped, mortality increased. So we thought, this is interesting. Is there something different in the older age groups? So we looked at people over 60 to find an association with LDL cholesterol and heart disease. One, there was no association. What was really interesting, though, there was an inverse association with all-cause mortality and total and LDL cholesterol. In other words, the higher your cholesterol, the less likely you were to die. And what's been forgotten in all this obsession with heart disease is actually cholesterol has an important role in the immune system. And older people are more vulnerable to dying from things like infections, like pneumonia, for example. So it's probably a protective effect in the older groups. Separate to that, publication in BMJ just a couple of years ago followed up 100,000 people over around 10 years in Denmark. And they tried to find what was the optimal level of LDL cholesterol when it comes to longevity and lifespan. And that optimal level is well above what would get you a red flag from your doctor in terms of lowering LDL. So in, in, in UK terms, it was 3.6 millimoles per liter, which I think is about 140, 
between 140 and 160 milligrams per deciliter, that is actually considered optimal for lifespan. Now, just to tell you on a personal level, my LDL is lower than that. So I'm a bit concerned. So I'm proactively trying to increase my LDL. So I'm eating more saturated fat at the moment, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. My triglycerides and HDL are great, but I want to make sure that my longevity is better. So I'm, I'm trying to increase my LDL right now. How interesting and slightly ironic that so many people in the longevity space are trying to lower ApoB. And just let's just clarify ApoB versus LDL. ApoB is a lipoprotein found on low-density lipoprotein, LDL cholesterol, which is a lipoprotein sort of balloon. It's a bus that carries cholesterol and triglycerides uh, throughout the body. But ApoB is also contained on a few other particles, different types of ApoB on chylomicrons, VLDL, et cetera. But so when we're talking about ApoB, it's essentially synonymous with LDL at a high level. But there are many in the space, in the longevity space, who would say, no, you want your LDL, your ApoB, as low as possible to optimize your longevity. It's it's just the discord here, the discordance is striking. Yeah, just to explain, just to give people, um, uh, you know, to try and play devil's advocate, but we can counter this. One of the other reasons why um, people are so obsessed with low cholesterol is that people, so I, I think when it comes to total and LDL cholesterol in general, 80% of it is genetic, right? You can influence the profile with diet. So people with genetically low cholesterol, Paul, certainly from framing them, um, they didn't tell to, tend to develop heart disease, certainly up to the age of 50 or 60, there was no heart disease. So there is a, a presumption that because they had gen, people with genetically low cholesterol or had low cholesterol didn't have heart disease, we should lower it. And that, that, that doesn't make any sense because you know, this Mendelian randomization we talk about means there could be other genes, and probably are, associated with low cholesterol that actually are the driving force between not developing heart disease and longevity, but it's actually nothing to do with the low cholesterol itself. And I think that's been, you know, this has been a reductionist mentality. Now, with the best intentions, you know, evidence evolves. You know, people, I think those scientists genuinely believe what they were doing. But now we're well past that stage where there's so much evidence to debunk it. It shouldn't continue. The reason it continues is these powerful industries have profited from this flawed science. And then they then control the universities and academics. Like most of the research funding now, certainly in nutrition science and um, in, in drug development, um, to universities comes from pharma or, or, or big food. So the people who are calling the shots um, where, you know, uh, ultimately are, the, are these powerful entities that lie for profit, we know that. Um, but the problem is the, the, uh, the public and doctors aren't aware of these system failures. They think that the, the guideline bodies are independent and they are rigorous and that anything published in New England Journal of Medicine or The Lancet is gospel truth. Um, when most published research findings, according to the Stephen Hawking-like figure of medicine, Professor John Ioannidis at Stanford, most published research findings are false or certainly misleading. Um, and I think that's a discussion we need to start having. And that brings me back to something else very briefly on medicine and is that this sociocultural phenomenon where people think that, you know, medicine is an exact science that the, you know, when it's not, it's not an exact science at all. It's an applied science. It's a science of human beings. It's a social science. It's evolving. It may be, you know, one diet, as you were going to talk about, one diet for one particular person at a particular time may be good for them, but may be harmful for another. So I think there's a lot of nuance here that is, is lost. And that part of that is because of this lack of appreciation that actually good health ultimately doesn't come from a medicine bottle. Good health comes from lifestyle. And your doctor isn't somebody that ultimately is going to be the, you know, you're not going to have the best um, health purely because of what, what your doctor tells you. Most of what determines your health happens outside the 
you know, the, the, um, you know, the consultation room in the hospital. Absolutely. And I think there's, we need to start with that discussion first, and then we can talk about uncertainties and evidence, what we think is best. And actually, patients like that. They want that honesty. I just want to highlight what you said there because it's so important. And this is fairly technical. So if this is confusing for people, just kind of skip past this, past this part. But you talked about these Mendelian randomizations, which are abbreviated MR. And similar to that are genome-wide association studies or GWAS. And Mendelian randomizations and GWAS studies, are the those are the evidence put forth by the people who are preaching that ApoB is a direct driver, is the proximate cause of cardiovascular disease. And you said it so well, you explained so well how they can be flawed. These are not studies that are looking at interventions, that they're just, they're looking at genetics and they're looking at the association of certain genetic phenotypes. So a yes. phenotype is the expression of your genetics. It's how it looks physically in the world. And some people have genes which lead to lower LDL cholesterol. And some people, as you mentioned earlier, have genes which lead to higher cholesterol. And the people on the high end are often considered to have familial hypercholesterolemia or familial hyperlipidemia. And as you said, many people, but not all people in the familial hyperlipidemia cohort do tend to develop atherosclerosis. But there are many people in that cohort also who don't develop atherosclerosis. And often there are over 2000, I think, genetic polymorphisms that can lead to FH, familial hyperlipidemia. You would know this better than I would. And so many of those have associated polymorphisms that you mentioned, either with um, at the level of the immune cells, the macrophages, which are in that subendothelial space, and they change the scavenger receptor in, in crazy ways. And so people with FH have an increased tendency to uh, have these macrophages within our blood vessels consume the cholesterol and become foam cells, or they're hypercoagulable in so many ways. And on the on the other end, which you briefly mentioned, people with low genetic cholesterol may have polymorphisms, which are not at all related to cholesterol, but maybe related to clotting or immunologic, um, the immunologic roots of how a plaque forms, how a fatty streak forms in the arteries. And so I think that you're so right. These GWAS, these Mendelian randomizations, which form the foundation of the ApoB argument are inherently flawed. And um, I'm just going to keep trying to have this conversation with some of these ApoB yeah, proponents. I mean Paul, Paul, I mean, you raised something else that's really important there is that we shouldn't, you know, ultimately when you, we need to treat the whole patient, not a biomarker, right? And I think the problem is people have uh, thought incorrectly that, you know, that because medicine may be an exact science, you've got a biomarker, you change the biomarker with the drug, automatically it's going to be benefit beneficial. But actually, certainly when it comes to drug therapy, uh, you have to uh, look at the, you know, the double-blinded randomized control trial, that if you do affect that biomarker, even if it's associated with the disease, does it make a difference? And that really gives you an answer. Um, and certainly when you look at statin drugs, for example, which are you know, one of the most prescribed drugs on the planet, you know, um, and uh, you know, it's estimated certainly statins are offered to about maybe 1 billion people in the world. I mean, that's an extraordinary figure. And I know in the United States, there's probably maybe at least 50 million people taking statins, maybe more, is that what patients are not told is that when you break down the information on the benefits of the statins, what's important to patients, like preventing heart attack, strokes, death, for example, certainly if you are at low risk of heart disease, you, uh, you've not already had a heart attack, or you haven't been diagnosed with severe coronary artery disease, or angina, or had a stent, or a bypass, that kind of thing, then you have at best, right, this is still industry-sponsored data that's non-transparent, right, but at best, 
you have a 1% chance, a one in a hundred chance that if you take that pill religiously for five years, it's going to prevent you having a non-fatal heart attack or stroke if you do not get side effects, but will not prolong your life. And really the you know, medicine uh, should be, and this is well documented for re- from researchers in this field, I've been a big promoter of this, is that actually giving in patients information in this way is actually the heart of ethical evidence-based medical practice. It's it, people, you need to give patients numbers in a way that they can understand, which is free from coercion and manipulation of their hopes and anxieties. And, and that isn't done routinely. And part of, again, Paul, is not, we weren't taught this at medical school, transparent communication of risk. So I think that that highlights, if you like, um, what people should be really asking is that when a patient goes to their doctor, you know, it should be, do I really need this drug? What are the absolute benefits and what are the absolute harms? What happens if I do nothing? And are there any safer or simpler alternatives? And of course, you and I know one of the most powerful alternatives to medications for chronic disease management is lifestyle change. And lifestyle change will just improve your lifespan, most likely. But one thing it can do, which most of these pills cannot do, Paul, is improve the quality of your life. And I think let's dig into statins because before I went to medical school, I was a physician assistant and I worked in cardiology for four years. And ultimately I went back to medical school and got my MD. But when I was in cardiology for four years, I gave out a lot of statins because I did what I was told as a PA. And I actually, I'm embarrassed to admit this, actually, I actually spoke for Pfizer. So I was a speaker for Pfizer about Lipitor. Um, you know, as a PA, they it seems prestigious to speak to other physician assistants or physicians about a drug, a statin drug. I'm early in my career. It's an interesting thing. Pfizer gives you slides. You can only use their slides. And you go, you have a nice dinner. They pay you a few hundred dollars and you talk about their drug. And I thought I was doing the right thing, but it's so interesting because in those slides about Lipitor, there was data saying, oh, the incidence of myopathy, muscle aches is very low, right? One in 20 or maybe even less than that. No, no, it was, yeah, less than 1%. Less than 1%, yeah. Yeah. And then, but my clinical experience was very different than that. And I think yours is as well. So let's talk about how statin manufacturers tweak the evidence, really how I got misled and, and, and where this whole statin industry, like it, it's just, it's corrupt at its base. And I think it's a good illustration of what we've been talking about. Yeah, no. Yeah. So interesting what you say, Paul, I actually was in a similar position to you in the sense that I used to be the guy that when the patient came, came into, you know, accident and emergency or the ER diagnosed with an acute heart attack, and we're taking them, about to take them to the cardiac catheter lab to do an angiogram and treat them, you know, as well as giving them blood thinners, I would be the guy very early on under the false belief thinking statins even had an effect acutely and would be prescribing 80 milligrams of atorvastatin in the ER before the patient's even gone to the cardiac catheter lab, right? So I understand that indoctrination completely. And I think one of the reasons we were indoctrinated, again, is that we wouldn't question, you know, uh, medical journals, who would say this is, you know, if you take a statin, you've had a heart attack, you've got maybe a 50 or 70%, uh, you know, risk reduction. If you're high risk, for example, you've had a heart attack from having another heart attack. And, uh, uh, and we believed it all without even accepting or thinking about any alternative or the fact that this could have been corrupted information. So that probably, that, that I think is still a big problem amongst many doctors. So we, we understand we've been there. Um, but actually, when you look at that data, you realize that we were ourselves had an exaggerated belief in these medications because we were, we were thinking, uh, you know, in relative risk terms, 
are not absolute risk terms, first and foremost. Um, and just to, for people to understand who are listening, if you have a clinical trial, let's just say, for example, you have 100 people you're following up um, over a five-year period. Um, and uh, you, in, in the one group of people, you have 100 people, say there's 200 totally in the trial. What, one group has the 100, you know, one group has a dummy pill, right? And the other group takes a statin. And the people in the dummy pill group, out of those 100 people over five years, two of them end up having a heart attack, right? But then in the statin group, only one person has a heart attack. And therefore, the relative risk reduction is 50%. You've reduced it from, you know, one out of two people. Instead of two people having a heart attack, you reduce it to one. So it's a 50% relative risk reduction, which sounds very impressive. But the actual risk reduction, absolute risk reduction, is one. You've only saved one person out of 100 you've treated from having a heart attack over a five-year period. So that's more accurate. You should be telling the patient there's a 1% chance, it's, you know, so that means 99 out of those 100 people who took the statin didn't get any benefit at all. And I think that's something that is a very nice way of explaining and understanding how doctors and members of the public have been deceived, if you like, to some degree, into thinking that these pills are more beneficial than they actually are. But, you know, the second thing you mentioned as well, your clinical experience then made you think, hold on a minute. And I was the same. I, I was seeing so many patients that clearly seemed to have statin side effects, particularly fatigue and muscle aches, quality of life limiting side effects, which on an observational level, managing and seeing hundreds, if not thousands of people over many years in clinics and in hospitals, was um, the, the fact that that figure in our own experience was probably was a lot higher, maybe 20, 30% of those patients. I was thinking, hold on a minute. So that's really where I started my journey to really investigate all of this uh, and then realize that the data that were, was being used on clinical decision-making was non-transparent. It was commercially confidential. It was drug industry sponsored and funded. The data was, you know, and then there were researchers that were churning out guidelines that were all getting funding from the drug industry. So once you realize that, you understand that this is really a form of institutional corruption. Um, but the patients get a bad deal, you know, because the patient in the consultation room will think that the most important thing they can do is lower cholesterol. And then often these people think they can eat what they like if their cholesterol is lowered because of the statin and they're not going to have heart disease. Yet they're increasing the risk of metabolic syndrome quite often. They're going off to, you know, eat junk food. You know, there's a great one of my, um, uh, there's a slide I use in one of my talks, which actually shows visually somebody that is clearly very, very overweight, who's sitting with a table, you know, uh, on a table of burgers and fries. And there's a little kind of, um, like a cloud, uh, you know, with, a, with, with some uh, text, you know, of him thinking, it's okay, I'm on stands, right? I can eat this, it's okay, I'm on stands. And that's the problem. That's a big issue. Yeah, yeah. My clinical experience was definitely the 20 to 30% of people would get muscle aches, memory loss, libido, erectile dysfunction, all kinds of problems. And it's so ironic because one of the cardiologists that I worked with during that time. And a good friend of mine was taking the statins. He's so bought in and he was maybe 45 at the time. And he's a mountain biker. You know, I was probably in my mid thirties at the time or early thirties and he's a mountain biker. And he just says, Oh, these are so good. I mean, as a it, being in cardiology, when the rep comes with Lipitor, which is a Torvastatin or Crestor, which is a Torv, uh, Resuvastatin, you're, you're almost Hey, give me some of those samples. Like maybe I want to take this. You're so bought in. I never took a statin, but he did. And then he would tell me, man, I just can't climb the hills as much or my muscles are aching. And he's taking a small dose primary prevention as a cardiologist. And he's aware 
This is affecting yeah. my muscles negatively because the mechanism of statins is to inhibit the formation of cholesterol in the human body. I think a lot of people don't even understand that the human body makes this cholesterol molecule uh, and it makes it um, in, in this, you know, this pathway called the mevalonate pathway. And the enzyme is HMG CoA reductase. The name of the enzyme isn't that important, but that's not the end of the pathway that beyond the formation of cholesterol in the mevalonate pathway are things like squalene or coenzyme Q10 is a molecule that more people are familiar with. And that's what most of these muscle aches have been attributed to is this coenzyme Q10 deficiency. Where do we get coenzyme Q10? Well, we predominantly get it in our diet. We can make a little bit of it in the human body, but we get lots of it in our diet from organs like liver and heart and muscle meat. But no cardiologist is gonna tell their patients, okay, I'm putting you on a statin. You need to eat more heart. You need to eat more beef. You need to eat more steak. That, but they should, you know, that's essentially what the prescription should be. Yeah. You want more coenzyme it's interesting. Q10. It's interesting though. Some cardiologists actually are so invested in statins and the belief of their benefits. They actually tell their patients, listen, I don't care what you eat, what you like, you're on a statin now. So they perpetuate this problem, right? Through, through the illusion of knowledge and ignorance. Um, and uh, yeah, we need, to, we need to kind of just try and, um, you know, fight back against that really. Uh, and uh, so our patients get the best deal. But yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, certainly I see a lot of patients with all these, I mean, things can be so, so bad for our older patients that they often, there's something called pseudo-dementia, they get diagnosed with dementia when in fact it was a statin. And when you stop the statin, suddenly they come back to normal. I mean, you have these stories of people that are bed bound, like physically debilitated. They start walking again. The good news is they tend to happen quite quickly. People's side effects from statins tend to get better within a few weeks of stopping the pill. Obviously, we're not gonna advise people just watching this right now to do that. They should discuss it with their doctor. But people need to understand you know, the absolute benefits and harms and then make decisions according to that. You know, Ultimately, it's a patient that we are here to look after, not the profits of drug industry. You want to talk a little bit about Sir Rory Collins and the commercial capture of statin data and how, how Pfizer can have a trial that I talk about that says there's a less than 1% risk of side effects and that... Yeah, so, so, yeah. Yeah, so Professor Sir Rory Collins is considered probably one of the lead statin researchers in the world. Um, he took issue with me and John Abramson from Harvard um, because we published articles simultaneously in the BMJ where we suggested that about 20% of people suffer unacceptable or disabling side effects from statins. Uh, and he was not happy about that. Um, he has you know, dedicated his life and his work to statins. He is um, uh, at Oxford University, but his department certainly has taken, I think, well over 200 million pounds uh, of research funding from statin companies. He will say, of course, that doesn't influence um, you know, his uh, analyses. But I, I personally think that's a big financial conflict of interest. And, um, and he basically said that their studies didn't show that significant degree of side effects. The problem is a lot of these trials, again, which I didn't know, certainly as a qualified doctor, even, uh, even when I specialized, it was only, only until quite late on, is that when they enroll people in these randomized trials, they have this pre-randomization run-in period. So um, people, uh, before the trial starts, for several weeks, people are asked to take part and then they decide who ultimately is going to be in the trial, but people who get side effects and they put under, they put this under non, non-compliance are taken under as a broad term, are taken out of the trial. And therefore you're left with a selected group of people, certainly at the beginning, who 
probably got side effects early on. And then we thought, we, we, we better not keep these people in the trial. And then, But the results are only reporting on the people, the selected people that didn't get side effects early on. So you've already created a bias there, Paul. And I think that's a big issue. Um, over time, they were able to figure out, I think, the drug companies, because they designed the trials, right? Um, who is likely to get side effects. So then they would choose people to go in the trials who were less likely to get side effects. And therefore, you get a biased result from what's in the trial does not reflect what happens in the real world. And certainly, um, there's a great uh, online uh, article. Um, I think it was from the, um, it was something called Cholesterol Myth, uh, you know, uh, sorry, Side Effects, Not a Myth from, from Statin, something like that. Um, and I think it was American College, American College of Cardiology, and I wrote about it in my book, Statin Free Life. And they actually give a list of the risk factors for statin side effects. And they include female sex, um, age over 70, low BMI, vitamin D deficiency. I mean, there are so basically almost half of the population have an increased risk of side effects when you look at that, that list. And they estimate, actually, they come up with about a figure of 15%, which is certainly a lot higher than the 1% that Professor Rory Collins talks about. So I think there's a massive discrepancy there. And clearly, I think the, the, the rule of thumb now is any industry-sponsored study, to be honest, uh, Paul, should be seen as marketing until proven otherwise. Or at the very least, the results should be taken with a pinch of salt that they are going to exaggerate the benefits and the safety of those medications. And if, if every doctor and member of the public knew that, I think we would practice a lot better medicine. We would, have, we would stop over-medication. People would make more informed decisions. And it's not that we don't have an alternative. We also have the, the power of lifestyle as well. Yeah, and I want to talk about that in a moment. But I just want to note that in parallel, one of the main researchers at Tufts University, who is behind the food compass guidelines, these sort of infamous guidelines that place frosted mini wheats and honey nut Cheerios above whole eggs and beef in terms of overall nutritional value for humans, um, and who has published many studies, some meta-analyses, which are, I would say, have many deep flaws on seed oils. Um, he is funded by multiple seed oil companies, including Bungie, B-U-N-G-E, which is the major producer of seed oils, a major producer. I'll actually put on YouTube, I'll put a, um, uh, a screenshot of disclosure from one of his recent studies showing that he is funded by Bungie. So this is happening across the sort of health space. It's happening across medicine that the researcher who is being cited by fact checker uh, websites, when I am getting cited for misinformation on Instagram or other social media platforms saying seed oils are harmful to you, they're quoting this guy and saying, look, this guy, this professor at Tufts said they're not bad. He's funded by the seed oil. <laughs> it's, just, it's just crazy. The, the corruption runs so deep. And I think this is why it's so important to let people know what's going on here and follow the money, right? There's not a lot of money in beef tallow. Um, there's a lot of money in a highly industrial processed oil. Yeah. And there's a lot of money in drugs like proton pump inhibitors, which we haven't talked about today, or statin drugs. And that, that doesn't always lead the humans behind it to make the best decisions. It's scary. Yeah, I mean, it also tells us the power of the media and the power of our environment influencing our health behaviors, right? And, uh, you know, um, we shouldn't underestimate that. You know, certain things become indoctrinated or gospel truth, uh, and uh, it takes time to overturn it. But I think, you know, by 
addressing these facts head on. I think the other thing as well, Paul, I think people increasingly now are aware that something is very, very wrong, you know, with our healthcare system. Um, you know, you spend in the US certainly, I think, well over four trillion dollars on healthcare. Yet why is your life expectancy reducing? Why are more people with chronic having more chronic disease? And I think we have to accept a significant responsibility and role in that as a medical profession. I think these things are multifactorial. But a lot of it is because we are not really adhering to the principles of ethical evidence-based medicine or nutrition science, as in what does the best available evidence tell us, which is free from commercial influence, because the, um, the literature is just infiltrated and flooded with uh, you know, commercial corruption, whether it's medical journals, whether it's academic institutions, whether it's guideline bodies. So therefore, you know, we've, we've got to this place um, because of, you know, if you're going a little bit deeper, I mean, my own root cause analysis is that we had probably well-intentioned uh, neoliberal economic policies introduced by people like Margaret Thatcher in the UK, Prime Minister, and Ronald Reagan in the US in the 80s. But what, that's, what has happened over time is that these big, powerful companies have had more and more unchecked, visible and invisible power. And, um, you know, people need to understand very clearly that they have this legal obligation to produce profit for shareholders and they are not there to give you the best treatment. And uh, the collusion of academic institutions, uh, medical journals um, and doctors with industry, that's a real scandal. These are the people that should have responsibilities to patients and scientific integrity, but they are losing that integrity, unfortunately, and maybe not even realizing it to these industries. And, uh, and our health is regressing. You know, and uh, it's it's not a good place to be. But, um, you know, we have very simple, cheaper solutions that we can offer people uh, to to overcome or prevent chronic disease and even manage it. And I know that youth are something you've been advocating and doing very in a very powerful way. Uh, and, and we just need to keep hammering it home and, and, and just educating people to understand the system uh, is is not working for them. And that means our politicians as well, the people that have the power to govern laws to stop these excesses and manipulations have a big role to play and they, they have to be held accountable, you know, in this process. And I, I, let's, let's move on to talking about what people can actually do. And before we do that, I just want to say that I think that it's important to note both you and I believe there are some benefits to the intentions behind making pharmaceuticals that in your work as an interventional cardiologist, you're using medications when you're putting in stents that are life-saving in that moment for that person. How that person got there is a separate story, which we're sort of talking yes. about. But like, this is not to say that all pharmaceuticals are bad. Um, when I was a kid, I had asthma, probably for a lot of reasons. I was eating junk food, did not have access to raw dairy when I was a kid. And, you know, it was good to have an albuterol inhaler, a beta agonist inhaler. I thankfully didn't never had a life-threatening uh, asthma attack, but there are kids with allergies and they get EpiPens and that's absolutely life-saving. And, you know, my sister had uh, a life-threatening um, complication when she was younger. She had C. diff colitis and got toxic megacolon. And the medical system, um, you know, gave her intravenous uh, immunoglobulins and that probably saved her life. So there are interventions within the medical system that are very beneficial for people. It's just that um, overall, there is this sort of this this creep of uh, the pharmaceutical industry influencing things. And uh, many, I think many of the guidelines and many of the medications that we use for the treatment of chronic illness uh, seem to be influenced in a negative fashion. And there is this, this sort of appears to me, this corrupted paradigm at play. 
Yeah, no, sure. And I think you're, you're right. We shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not trying to, we're not here to undermine all medicine. There's a lot of very important medicines um, that are crucial. And that, that comes back to the fact that we need to be treating the right patient with the right medication at the right time through informed consent. But the issue now, Paul, is that the overall net effect of the drug industry on society, unfortunately, in the last couple of decades has been a negative one. So if you look at most of the drugs that are, are produced or approved by the FDA, certainly between 2000 and 2008, one analysis showed 75% of copies of old ones. So they are changing molecules here or there on, on old drugs, renaming them, patenting them, making money, moving on to the next one. So it's huge waste in the system. And then you've got problems with the fact that um, many medications actually do more harm than good. So the net effect of the drug industry on society now is, is overall negative. And, um, and we need to change that. And, uh, you know, by allowing the system to perpetuate itself where the drug, the system is rigged, actually, in many ways, because the drug industry spend 20 times more on marketing than they do on basic science research. Right. So what do you expect is going to happen? So until we highlight these problems, the drug industry themselves are not going to be um, actually uh, producing these kind of newer, more important therapeutic interventions that we need, whether it's to deal with multi, you know, antibiotic resistant drugs, you know, uh, and improving on those um, or, or finding cures for cancer because it's not profitable. You know, what they want to do ultimately from that business model is get many, as many people as possible taking their medications for as long as possible. That would be the most profitable. And, uh, and we need to just basically fight back and just say, no, this isn't the, the, the right way forward. Yes, medications have a role as a backup, but the first line needs to be a, a lifestyle intervention. So let's talk about those lifestyle interventions. When someone comes to you as a patient and they, they say, okay, doc, I'm ready to make changes. That's a beautiful moment when somebody is ready and interested in making changes. What, what sort of a lifestyle would you recommend to them? How can someone listening to this podcast who is obese or who has, quote, I don't even want to say elevated cholesterol, let's just say metabolic dysfunction, because hopefully the person listening to the podcast has gotten a fasting insulin. Um, and, and maybe they want to improve their lipid parameters. They, they want to not necessarily LDL focus, but they want their cholesterol panel to improve as a reflection of their improved metabolic health. What do you recommend for them? Yeah. So I think about these, the four key areas I look at, and we can expand a little bit on each of those are the diet, the exercise, sleep and stress and sleep and stress are obviously intertwined. Um, for a lot of these people, I think the most important issue is, is diet. Uh, one of the things I do tell my patients, and I think this is important, is that, and the, and the literature, you know, my clinical experience also reflects that, is that dietary changes can have an effect on metabolic risk factors very rapidly. You know, some studies show in, the, that in obese people, you can reverse metabolic syndrome within just three to four weeks of purely just changing one's diet without counting calories and certainly without lowering cholesterol, right? So, um, and what does that mean? Well, the, I think the low-hanging fruit, the big issue now, Paul, certainly in terms of how, how, as the evidence has changed or evolved or we've got a better understanding, I think the big issue is ultra-processed foods. So you look at the you know, calorie consumption in the UK, 50% of all calories consumed comes from ultra-processed foods. In the States, it's about 60%. So it's a big problem. And what does that mean? Well, these are usually industrially produced products in a packet, you know, where there's a combination of sugar, starch, industrial seed oils that you've mentioned usually with additives and preservatives. And there are many, many studies, well over 20, 30 studies now, observational studies showing a clear link between the development of things like heart disease, metabolic syndrome, cancer, dementia, all-cause mortality. There's, you know, there is definitely an association there. 
um, even independent of weight. So I say the first thing is cut out the ultra processed foods. So what does that mean? Comes out in a pa- out of a packet and has five more ingredients, additives and preservatives. Usually, just avoid that. Also consider it depends where you start from as well, Paul. I think we'll talk a little bit about this about later on. But if you're metabolically unhealthy already, I would say limit or eliminate certainly for the first few weeks low quality carbohydrates. So this is your bread, your pasta, your rice, that kind of thing. Um, and and that would be a starting point in terms of what I advocate for. I say, listen, you know, mixture of whole fruit. I'm very much a, an advocate for the components of the traditional Mediterranean diet. I think where we have the best evidence, which seem to be anti-inflammatory. So in one sense, you're targeting insulin resistance by reducing the refined carbs. On the other side, you're trying to introduce foods that have some anti-inflammatory properties with some evidence behind them. I know there's not a lot of great evidence in nutritional science, but in terms of RCTs and that kind of thing. So I would say, you know, whole fruit and vegetables. Um, I would say oily fish, omega-3s are really important, at least two or three times a week. Um, uh, nuts and seeds. And then I don't say, I don't. I say once you get the base right, I'm not bothered about you having red meat and all these other things, saturated fats. It doesn't bother me, right? So enjoy to your heart's content. And that's where, where my focus on the food side would be. When it comes to exercise, listen, you don't need to be pounding it in the gym. Do what you enjoy, right? Uh, that makes you feel good. And, and certainly when you look at the evidence of, from, from communities where they have high longevity, you know about this, the Blue Zones, they didn't have gyms, but they were outside. They were getting vitamin D. Um, they were walking. You know, a brisk walk, 30-minute brisk walk once a day in terms of health is great. Um, of course, as you get older, there are issues with muscle mass, et cetera, and deteriorating muscle mass. So probably a little doing something with a little bit of resistance is probably a good idea. And making sure you're eating enough protein. That's really important for older people. Um, I'd be fascinated to hear your thoughts on that. And then really, I think one of the, the elephant in the room now, which we're not addressing very well, Paul, is chronic psychological stress. And certainly that has been a big issue for many people for a long time. It's probably worsened during the pandemic. When you look at it as an odds ratio or risk for heart disease, we've got good evidence now suggesting that chronic psychological stress, which affects many people, if not most people, has a similar risk for heart disease and heart attacks as being a smoker or having type 2 diabetes or having hypertension, which is huge. Mm. Uh, And the mechanism of action is probably because of stress uh, causes uh, increased inflammatory markers in the blood, causes chronic inflammation and increases uh, thrombotic factors in the blood as well. So that's probably where it has that mechanism of action. So what do you do about it? Well, you know, it also comes back to other things you need to think about before we get into things like meditation about, you know, the quality of relationships, um, are you socializing enough? You know, um, the, two, the two most biggest causes of stress that people have uh, are work and relationship stress. So are there, are there things you can do in terms of your day-to-day life on these external factors or, or, or to mitigate the stress from concentrating on those external factors? It may even mean you need to change your job. I mean, we have to really think deeply about these things because it damages, it damages health quite profoundly. And of course, one of the things I do ask people to do, certainly those people who um, have got heart disease already, and there is some data on this, and this is quite fascinating, is meditation. So a very interesting observational study done in India uh, called the Mount Abu Hot Trial. People can look this up. And I actually know the cardiologist who conducted it. He's an interventionist. And this is in the early 2000s. And he took, this is before statins were prescribed, actually, in, in, to these patients in a, in, a, in, a, in a very sort of, um, uh, in a blanket way. So these people weren't taking statins, but they were diagnosed with moderate severe heart disease. So that means they had at least a 50 to 70% narrowing or stenosis of their arteries. And he looked at several hundred of these people, did angiograms on them, and then he put them on a healthy lifestyle plan. Now his particular plan, because it was India and some of these people quite religious, it was a very high fiber vegetarian diet. Fine, that's from the, but the diet wasn't a big issue um, from my perspective. And then it was, um, 
two 30-minute brisk walks a day. And there was something called Raj Yoga Meditation. And then he followed them up over several years, repeated their angiograms. And this is extraordinary. He found that on the people who adhered to the lifestyle plan, there was an average reduction in stenosis of the narrowing of their arteries ball of 20%, right? Which is unheard of, right? 70% narrowing becoming 50%, 50% becoming 30%. So then he tried to look into the data a bit more carefully to see was what was the independent predictor? Were there any independent predictor from something called multivariate analysis? And the only factor that was an independent predictor for reversal of heart disease was 40 minutes of meditation a day. Hmm. Yeah. Right. So, so that, I mean, that is, that is fascinating. And I think the stress issue anyway, with a lot of people is a driver of some of these poor habits and poor eating behaviors, because people turn to the comfort foods when you're stressed out. So I always, with my patients, I, I, I say, this is, and you ask questions to these patients, right? I give them a simple question, like naught to 10, how stressed have you been in the last few years, blah, blah. And invariably most of them are like seven, eight, nine, even 10, and they haven't done anything to address it at all. You know? And I've had people who are like black belts in karate who are like 45 years old who are coming with heart attacks. And you go through the history and you're like, what the hell? How's this happened? He says, well, doc, my level of stress has been 10 out of 10 for the last four years. I've been sleeping four hours a night. Okay, here we go. Right. That's it. That's what's caused your heart attack at 45. So it's something that we don't think about enough, but it's really, really important. It's, 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 it cannot be emphasized enough. And that's incredible. You know, I think that as much as I fervently believe in animal foods and meat and an animal-based diet of fruit and honey and raw dairy. I think that there are so many versions of diet that can work well for people um, beyond that. And, but all of them are going to eliminate ultra-processed foods. Not one of them contains ultra-processed foods, right? So like you said, I mean, I think a high fiber vegetarian diet, if it includes some eggs and milk, that can be great for a lot of people. I mean, milk and eggs, I mean, like a lot of days I'll have milk with honey before I go surf and then I'll come back and eat it. I mean, I'll have a thing. I mean, I'm like vegetarian until I get back from surfing in the morning. It's not. And, and some days, you know, I'm vegan in the afternoon because I'm doing juice or fruit for a little while. So I think there's a lot of dietary stuff and I don't, I don't get as wrapped around the axle of, of the dietary dogmatism as I used to, though. I do find that for some yeah. people who have autoimmune issues, um, that there is, that some of these, you know, dietary modifications can be quite helpful. Um, yeah. Eliminating certain things. And I think that's an interesting. And, and I think on that, you have more knowledge than me on this and experience with, than me on this, Paul, is that, you know, I've seen some really fascinating data that for, for certainly autoimmune conditions, a carnivore diet can be completely life-changing. You know, pe- people with conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, you hear the story of Michaela Peterson, which is extraordinary. You know, how she completely, I mean, this is a, a debilitating condition. I think she had juvenile onset uh, rheumatoid um, and it completely cured her essentially just when she went on a carnivore diet which is really fascinating and i think there needs to be more research to look at again you're absolutely right the right patient at the right time you know right dietary pattern it isn't it's going to be the same for everybody but the low-hanging fruit is let's get rid let's get rid of the ultra processed foods and just so people know um i've spoken about this in the past but it's something we're still moving forward on there's a researcher at Utah State University, Stefan Van Vliet, who I've had on the podcast in the past, and we're we're still aiming at later this year putting a, a pilot randomized controlled trial in place, um, looking at people with rheumatoid arthritis or other autoimmune diseases and comparing the outcomes with a plant-based diet and probably the um, 
like a standard of care diet, which will have things that my hypothesis would be would not be as beneficial for an autoimmune condition, sure. like lots of grains and things like this. So that research is hopefully that research is happening in, in the near future. But I just want to come back to what you said about stress and sleep like that, that that's the, another part that cannot be overemphasized. And I wish there were more of an objective metric for people. I know there are some of these HRV monitors that people can wear. And yeah. there was even one that I trialed for a little while. And you're, when you're wearing it, it makes a sound when your heart rate variability changes. And I thought that's kind of cool, but we need some sort of feedback. I think as humans, perhaps maybe this is too much technology, but I think so often we get into stress states and we don't even understand how stressed we are. It's one of these silent killers. Um, I did a podcast a few weeks ago with Georgie Dinkov and we talked about this cortisol to DHEAS ratio. And that's a really interesting thing for me because it's connected like that and fasting insulin, I think are the, the most interesting blood work analyses that I've learned about since finishing residency and, you know, doing what I do now as a physician I think if more physicians did fasting insulin, it would change medicine. And if more people were aware of this cortisol to DHES ratio as a, yeah. as a sort of an objective marker of stress, um, that that's actually really well studied. And there's actually really good data. I can send you some looking at like longevity. That'd be fascinating, Paul. Yeah. I wasn't aware of that, but that you're right. I mean, that would be amazing to get a good validated marker of stress. Absolutely. Yeah. There's good data on morbidity or at least mortality and longevity with cortisol to DHES. And so if people do blood work and you're feeling super stressed, I think our subjective characterization of that is pretty accurate. But at the same yeah. time, check your cortisol to DHES ratio. And, and if it's high, I mean, it's, it's very clear that, um, that, that something's going on that needs to be changed in the human body. And that's sort of the thing. Yeah. And, we change. and, and, and actually, it's interesting, uh, before I forget, you know, there is an evolutionary reason why inflammatory markers go up and clotting factors go up with acute stress, because actually, if you think about it, you know, when we were in the jungle, um, if we were under threat, if, you know, it was, it was survival of the fittest, the first thing that would happen, say there's a saber-toothed tiger around the corner, is that your body gets ready for the attack, right? So you don't bleed to death. And of course, how would you do that? You increase clotting factors in your blood, right? The problem is it's a chronic stress that's the issue. And if those are up constantly, then of course, that's not gonna be good for the body and, and it's gonna damage or contribute to damaging the inner lining of the heart arteries. And certainly that's probably why it, it, you know, has a big role to play, certainly when it comes to heart disease. But now I think we know with a lot of these chronic diseases, even cancer, certainly you get dysfunctional immune system, et cetera. Um, you know, there's some very good data from, from the, the 2000s, I think, which were the people that did most of the research looking at the common cold and what were the, you know, what would predispose you to getting sick. And in fact, anecdotally, Paul, we can probably remember times where we were really stressed out and that's when we got sick and we got viruses that lasted a bit longer than they should have done. And they found a really, they did a really interesting study and they used these different metrics of asking people about stress and even relating to relationships and how are you feeling at the moment. And if and they then exposed them to the cold virus, the coronavirus, right? They exposed them to the traditional, not, not COVID, traditional coronaviruses. And they found that if you were um, in a really good place mentally and least stressed, your risk of getting a cold when actually having symptomatic cold symptoms being exposed to the cold virus was one in three. If you were at the other end and you were stressed out and all that kind of stuff and relationships weren't good or you're in a bad place, then your risk of getting cold when you were exposed was two, two and three, mm. which is really interesting. Yeah. So it's just so hard to quantify. Yeah. yeah. People, Think, thinking so about that, we stressed out the whole world yes. with oh, COVID. Yes. 
in a, to a level which actually probably made people more predisposed to getting COVID. Yeah. You know, it's, and, it's something to think about. And that before we even talk about the fact they didn't focus on diet and people's diets got worse and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Which we discussed already, so we don't need to go there again. I know we discussed it last time on, on the last <laughs> podcast I did with you. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. It, it's, uh, I think we need to think about the lifestyle factor as well when we move forward. This isn't just about chronic disease. Something I learned, and I, I know you learned during the pandemic when we did the research, it's like, actually, hold on a minute. This actually is important for immune resilience as well. Yeah. I wonder if people could just, I, I sort of like the simple metric that you use, just check in with themselves every day, maybe in the evening. How stressed am I today? Scale of one to 10. And, and, you know, you write it down. Maybe there's like this, I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud, this diary, a stress diary. I'm stressed a four, I'm a three. And you think like, if you're seeing sixes and sevens or even fives every day, that should be an impetus to okay. change, to do something that, that is going to lower your overall stress. It's just, I think we need to make this sort of idea of stress more concrete for people so that they can, they can modify it. But I also want to highlight a project that you're working on as we close the podcast, because we've talked so much about this this intrusion perhaps is the best word or this, this infiltration of the pharma industry into medicine. And I'm so excited that you're working on this documentary. You want to tell people about it? Yeah. Thanks, Paul. No, thanks for mentioning. So um, I'm co-producing my second documentary. The first one I did with the same uh, partner was Donald O'Neill, who's a former international athlete. We did a film a few years ago called The Big Fat Fix. We went into the whole history of Ansel Keys and sugar industry, et cetera, looking at the secrets of the Mediterranean lifestyle. And it did very well. We premiered it in Parliament and influenced health policy here in the UK. But we want to do now something which is going to be very focused on the states and how big pharma have ultimately corrupted medicine. And it's called First Do No Farm, where at the moment we're in the crowdfunding stage. So there's a promotional video which I'll share with you. And, uh, you know, we were going to interview some, some big names, important people in the health space. John Abramson from Harvard, who's been done more work than anyone in, in litigation in the drug industry. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, misdemeanors committed by various companies over the years. And he's got a lot of uh, insight into that. Jay Bhattacharya, who you may know from University of uh, from Stanford, yeah. who has, you know, he has a lot of, uh, you know, he's a physician, but also he has a background in health as a health economist. And uh, we're going to basically try and expose and show people uh, the roots of the healthcare crisis and give empower them. We're going to be a big emphasis on the lifestyle changes as well going to give people information on things like statin drugs and blood pressure pills and the absolute benefits and the alternatives that they can uh, they can take up so it'd be good for individuals but also for policymakers um you know and uh, i think the great news as well also is that you know i did a I did joe rogan, rogan podcast recently and he you know i showed him the video and at the end i was you know pretty uh, pleasantly surprised and he said listen when it's out we're going to promote it so it's going to do well but we need to get the crowdfunding right you know if people contribute to, to this movie then you know, we're going to produce a very high quality product, hopefully, then the day, film in the summer and get it out early next year. The sooner, the better, really. How can um, people support it? Um, so they can go to nofarmfilm.com, nofarmfilm.com website, and they can contribute anything from $4.99 a month to whatever they want, really. Um, so, and there's a nice promotional trailer there as well. So I'll, I'll share that with you. Awesome. Yeah, maybe we can put a link in the, in the description and N-O-P-H-A-R-M. Yeah. No farm film, film. com. Perfect. Yeah, no awesome. farm.com. Yeah. First I think this, farm. That's the message. Yeah. Let's focus on lifestyle. <laughs> it's so, I, I so appreciate your work, Asim. It's a pleasure to see you and I hope we get to catch up in person soon. It's just, I think that this, this work that, that, that you and I do as physicians, especially what you're doing with this film and all this work you're doing with these previous documentaries and all your work during the, 
the last few years. It's it's so valuable. So thank you. And it's it's the type of thing that I never thought I'd be doing. You probably never thought you'd be doing this, but it's invaluable what you're doing. So I appreciate you so much. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it. Team effort. Onwards and upwards. <laughs> Onwards. And just so people know, where can they find you on social media once they go to No Farm Film? Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm on Twitter as Dr. Asim Hotra. Uh, Instagram is lifestyle medicine doctor, one word. Um, that's really all. I think that's where I post most of my stuff. Okay, great. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, mate.